Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Eric Bruton. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. On this show, I invite some of the most important and exciting leaders in wealth management and fintech to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. So why should you listen to this show? Well, my goal is for you to learn one or two ideas that will help you run a better business and or become a stronger leader. These shows have been a blast to do, mostly because of the great guests and the interesting conversations we've had. You can follow Can You Hold My Attention on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. There's a lot we can learn from the true pioneers in our industry, and Tim Coaches is exactly that, a true pioneer. He founded Coaches Fitz, Tracy Fitzhugh, and Gott, an RIA in San Francisco in 1991. In fact, Tim was a client of mine way back when at Schwab Institutional, where I had the good fortune of not just being able to witness his growth, but also see how fast they were growing compared to other RIAs across the United States. And it was a true, truly amazing, successful firm that perfected the art of organic growth. His firm neighbored Silicon Valley, and Tim focused on executive compensation and stock ownership, helping his clients manage through the accumulation phase of their wealth, and then serving as their ongoing financial advisor. In 2008, Tim and his partners entered into a merger with another RIA, and the combined firm became Asperian. I'll let Tim tell you a little bit about that experience, but I also wanted him to talk about how he built a successful multi-billion dollar RIA, how he managed his own succession plan and the learnings from that process, and then also gather his perspective on some of the key trends in our industry. Tim, good morning. Welcome good morning. to the show. It's great morning, to have Eric. you on. It's uh, You and I met each other, I don't know, some 25 years ago <laughs> when I was at Schwab and you were heading up the firm, heading up your RIA in San Francisco. Right. And it's been some time, but it's yeah. good to see you again. Good to see you again as well. Thank you, Derek. And I understand you're talking to us from beautiful Santa Barbara. Is that right? I am. I am speaking to you from beautiful Santa Barbara. It's a little gray and overcast. We're having our typical summer weather. It's gray in the morning. And I don't think we're going to get much sympathy from the East Coast folks on this, right? <laughs> no, I don't think so. So, yeah, this is a very high-class problem. I mean, you've got the beach. You've got the mountains. Uh, you've got popular talk show hosts as as, uh, as neighbors. Isn't that right? Um, yes, we do. As a matter of fact, probably the most famous and popular talk show host. Oprah who, and Ellen. Who, who interviews who – interviews princes and princesses well i was going to ask you if you if you've bumped into prince harry or Meghan markle at the uh, in the vegetable section of the supermarket no no not yet not yet although no? you do see celebrities here because a lot of a lot of people particularly from uh hollywood have uh, have second homes here but the the ethic here in town is not to pay any attention to not to notice not to ask for autographs to be considered very very bad form well, I'm sure that's exactly why they moved there then. Yeah. Yeah. So I thank you again for joining. I, I'd like to talk to you about a couple things today. Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer in that uh, one who has the background that you have 
in this industry um, and the experiences that you've had can lend quite a bit towards quite a bit of knowledge and, and perspective towards the trends that we're seeing in our industry. So I want to talk about some of these trends, um, also about this long lost art of what I call organic growth in this business mm-hmm. and how everyone's sure. focused on inorganic, but uh, sure. organic can really make or break a firm. Right. Uh, a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is succession planning. Yes. And then I, do I, also- a lot of, I do a lot of consulting on that uh, with uh, domestic RIAs um, and uh, general strategic planning. But most of the consulting work I do is about succession. And you're well, well experienced to talk about that. And then I just want to I want to talk as well about some of the things you're doing on the international front. Okay, that would be interesting Good. to our listeners Good. as well. So, so in general, what are what are you up to these days? I know you're not retired in the, le- no, in the least bit. No, no, I'm very much involved in a number of nonprofit boards. Up until last uh, December, I was on the Schwab Mutual Funds and ETF board. Uh, I'm on every investment committee of every board that I'm engaged in. Usually, I chair those committees, so I'm really tuned into what's going on in the investment world and. In addition to that, I'm doing a lot of consulting, as I mentioned, to domestic RIA firms on uh, general strategic planning and um, uh, succession. And then I'm also involved in a training program, Philip Palavia's G2 program, uh, where I have been on the faculty with Philip and others for the past seven or eight years. Okay, so you're definitely not retired. No, definitely. Def- <laughs> no, not at all. I'm busier, I think, than I've ever been. Well, you know, you've always had a good relationship with Schwab, too. I know even yes. back 25 years ago, you were very involved in, in really providing feedback to the custody organization so that we could become better at serving RIAs. And right. I know you've had, some, you've had a lot of friendships, probably work with some of the executives over the years, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. I've, I, our firm coaches fits was, I think one of the first RIAs to actually quote, sign up with, uh, what used to be called Schwab institutional going back to the John Coglin days when it was a very small fledgling operation. And so were we. And so the RIA world sort of grew up with that, um, what's now called advisor services, I believe at Schwab. And so many friends at Schwab and again, Quite a few of the senior people there have been clients of mine. You know, it's interesting. Back then, I remember one of the concerns advisors had was that, or they thought their clients would have, was that Schwab was a discount broker. At the time, very much thought of as a discount broker. But at the time, it was the fastest growing custodian. I'd almost say one of the only games in town at the time. Yes. Uh, But you had a lot of confidence in that organization. It's clearly grown up to obviously the largest custodian out there and still doing a really good job, I would say, at the blocking and tackling. Would you agree? Yeah, I do agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Schwab was as successful in this is that they just did a really great job. They had competitors, but uh, I think it's fair to say that the competitors weren't quite up to the same uh, quality of performance that Schwab was. And for us, being headquartered in San Francisco and Schwab being just literally down the street made it 
uh, made it especially uh, interesting for us because we were able to have face-to-face, literally face-to-face uh, contact. You'd run into Schwab people on Montgomery Street in San Francisco. So it gave us a degree of access that a lot of other firms wouldn't have had. Yeah, that home, that home court advantage, right? Right. Um, so let's talk about some of the biggest trends in our industry right now, because I do believe they're rooted in history. Uh, you can look at, you know, a couple of them are the growing success of the RA model. I mean, that that secret's out right. of the bag, but it's right. still growing at, at a, an amazing pace. Right. Industry consolidation that's going on and holistic advice, which I know even back then was very big with your firm. But yes. let's talk about let's talk about that first. Holistic advice, this growing trend of even going beyond financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, working with people in their uh, accumulation phases of their of their lives as well as decumulation. Right. Right. So talk about this. Talk about this trend. What you saw back then and what you're seeing now. Well, as you uh, point out. This is um, sort of old news to me and my colleagues from the uh, original Coaches Fitz days. This is what we always did. We always took a a comprehensive 360-degree perspective on the work that we did for clients. If it had anything at all to do with money, it was fair game, and we wanted the clients to rely on us for advice and guidance about all of that. And they expected us to take the initiative and we did. So uh, I think the rest of the RIA industry is sort of rediscovering or coming around to the an appreciation for how valuable this is to clients, how it cements the relationship uh, even more than uh, it would have been otherwise. Do you, did you do actual financial plans back then, or was it just sort of incorporated into your investment management process? Uh, well, we always saw investment management not as a distinct activity, but rather part of the overall uh, wealth management or financial planning we did for clients. It wasn't, well, we do financial planning over here, and then also we do investment management. Every, At least in the early stages, things are, I think, different now at Experian. But in the early stages, you didn't have option A and option B. You Option A, the only option, included both comprehensive financial planning and investment management. So I think um, uh, we we never sort of conceptually separated those things. Mm-hmm. If you believe, you know, this concept of a bird in the hand is worth two in a bush, and and I liken that to share wallet in our industry. I always believe that. Um, it's worth spending more time capturing larger share wallet of your clients versus finding another client. And so do you believe at, at that time that you had close to 100 percent of your of your clients investable assets? Uh, yes, uh, at least we were aware of them. And in some cases, clients would have a self-managed portfolio, uh, a hobby account, something that they preferred to play with themselves. And we were completely comfortable with accommodating that. But we 
always wanted to know what was going on there. We always wanted to have access to information about that. Not that we were going to second guess the client so much as we just needed to make sure that it fit with um, with the rest of what we were responsible for. And our responsibilities were, con we consider them very broad. It wasn't just a portfolio that they could custody at uh, a Schwab, for example, it could also be their uh, 401k plan or their account in their company's deferred comp plan uh, where there were investment choices, which was typical. So we would actually not only have uh, visibility into all that, we would take responsibility for making sure it fit. And so we would charge fees on it. So I'd say that other than small self-managed I want to call them hobby accounts. We had a hundred percent of our clients' wallet, and that was uh, we made it quite clear to clients up front that we did not want to be in a horse race with other managers. Well, your clients, well, you're in you were in San Francisco, so you're very close to Silicon Valley. Your yes. clients were going through some major changes in their lives, right? They were yep. selling businesses, their companies right. were going public, so you had to know that information. Well, yes, we had to know the information, but it didn't make any sense to try to give them comprehensive financial advice if we didn't, if we had blind spots. And so we we made it clear to the clients, uh, rather made it clear to prospects, that the only way we could do the work that we were capable of doing is if there were no blind spots. We had to know everything. What do you think about this trend now in the business, switching gears a little bit towards outsourcing investment management. I, I don't believe you all did that at, at no. your old firm, right? You no. Did yourself. no, we didn't do it then, but not because we would have found it um, uh, distasteful to do that, but rather that was not yet then a robust uh, alternative. You sort of had no choice but to build and manage an investment uh, capability internally. And uh, one of the best things we ever did was to hire someone with really strong credentials to be our chief investment officer. His name was Jason Thomas. He was a PhD in economics and had worked at uh, the Federal Reserve, had worked at Goldman Sachs, and joined us as our CIO. And that raised the level of our um, Op investment operations and our investments uh, substance to a wholly new level. So, um, you know, we made a lot of uh, a lot of investment lowercase i in our investment capabilities. But now to answer your question, I think the fact that today a lot of investment takes place in a passive uh, passive strategies. Uh, and uh, there are real benefits to scale in terms of access to uh, attractive uh, alternative investments, particularly hedge and venture capital. I think that it makes perfect sense for firms to, quote, outsource the implementation of the investment strategy. But I think firms are still doing the most important thing, which is working with the client to establish what the asset allocation is and to do the 
how shall I put it, the ongoing maintenance of that strategy, uh, doing tax smart uh, rebalancing, uh, doing uh, tax smart uh, additions and subtractions from the portfolio as clients accumulate and decumulate. So that's not something that you can easily outsource, nor should you. Do you think the client is actually thinks that when they pay you your fee, that they're paying you to pick stocks? Oh, some do. Sure, some do. But um, I think uh, my experience tells me that most clients are actually sort of naive or um, or nonchalant is a better word. They're nonchalant about this. They simply want good portfolio performance that matches the uh, time frame of their objectives and matches the risk posture that they're willing to take. Mm -hmm. And that's what the uh, RIA actually does most importantly. Uh, Harnessing the different drivers of that in the investment world is a behind the scenes function that, again, most clients, not all, but most clients don't really care about. Right. Well, let's talk about something I mentioned earlier, organic growth. And I remember back in my days at Schwab that when we would look at your firm, you were one of the, the, the growth machines of, of, of not only the West Coast, but in the entire country. Um, something about what you all were doing and bringing in new business and, and attracting new clients was off the charts. So what do you think are some of the central tenets of a successful and growing financial advisory firm? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that uh, that compliment. Uh, I don't think at the time we actually recognized that about ourselves. We were too busy serving clients and, and bringing in new business to think about what that meant in terms of how it was perceived externally. Uh, but I'm to answer your question. I think this is. This is something of a cliche, but having a clear vision for what the firm wants to be and then having a reasonably well-articulated mission, in other words, the why, why do we want to be what we intend to be, those things are really important because without those um, without those objectives, without those guideposts, then almost anything becomes uh, becomes legitimate and uh, can easily be distracting. Uh, How it actually happened that we grew was a function of another feature of a successful firm is having a clear target market. Our target market were corporate executives and corporate executives make fantastic clients because uh, in, uh, in, at least in those days, this is less the case today, but in those days, very often the corporation would sponsor the financial planning services, maybe not the investment management, AUM fees, but the financial planning services would be sponsored by the employer because it was in the employer's interest to make sure that their senior people were um, making the most of the substantial compensation that they were receiving. So very often the company would pay for it. So that eliminated a price resistance. Then uh, the corporate executives from Corporation X 
all had the same deferred comp plan, the same stock option program, the same uh, RSU program. And so once you had climbed that conceptual hill once, you understood how to optimize all those things for all the other clients that came from that, from that firm. And the uh, word of mouth was uh, very strong. This is how most RIA firms get new business, how organic growth happens. It's from referrals. Well, if you're working for X, executive X and executive Y at company A, then executive Z is their colleague, their friend, works in the next office, is going to easily become a client as well because they say, I really like the work that these people are doing. You ought to go and have them work for you. So um, that was, I think, the secret to our success is the very clear focus on a corporate executive market for the reasons I just described. So target market's important, but having the right team uh, yes. with your firm is obviously extremely sure. important to service that target market uh, adequately and effectively. Are there, do you reach a point with your business where you said, you know, we got to add to the team, we got to add some oh, key yeah. roles. And, oh, yeah. and, and if it sounds like you did. So what were one or two, you know, key hires that you made during that period of time to really grow the firm? Well, uh, the first of them I would mention is a fellow by the name of Tom Tracy, who is still at Asperient. Uh, Tom was our first professional employee. Uh, we hired him away from Deloitte, where uh, Linda Fitz and I had both worked before. Tom had worked with us at Deloitte. And as our business, our fledgling business back in 1991, began to grow, we realized that we needed help. And an obvious choice was to go back to Deloitte and see if we could pick off Tom Tracy to join us. And Tom was eager to come and work with us, Deloitte. Uh, I had this is a long uh, tangent, and I won't go into it. But I had an agreement with Deloitte that I would not poach any of their people for a year. And about nine months in, um, Linda and I um, decided that we needed additional help. So I went to Deloitte and said, well, I know I have a deal with you, but I want your permission to, in fact, hire someone who um, who's working for you now. And they said, okay. So uh, we did. So Tom not only brought a lot of talent, he expanded our um, our client service base by 50% uh, overnight. And Tom had a particularly strong, um, he is, in addition to being a CFP, he's a CFA. He had a, a particularly strong insight into and a vocabulary around investment planning. And so that added early on to the sophistication of our investment uh, offering. Right. And so Tom, I'd say, made uh, a big difference, both in terms of expanding our capacity, but also broadening and deepening our uh, service offering. There were others along the way as well. I think uh, someone who um, uh, also deserves a very favorable mention is Michael Kosman. Michael Kosman is not a financial planner. Michael Kosman is a business person, and we hired him um, I'm not sure what year it would have been, but it was 
probably late 90s or maybe around the year 2000 to join us as our chief operating officer, responsible for managing uh, all of our operations, managing HR. And uh, Michael uh, not only uh, improved the quality of our business operations, he freed up um mind space for the rest of us to work on on clients. So Michael was an extremely important um, uh, transition point in our business. He was our first non-planner but senior professional employee. So you've you identified a target market. You've hired some key talents, especially in investments and and operating roles, which is so crucial to the growth of a lot of firms where people who can focus on what they do best and let others do their jobs. <clears throat> and in 2008, um, there was a deal with Experient. Um, and you corrected me, uh, Tim, you said it wasn't a sale, but why don't you explain, because I don't think sure. I'm the only one that didn't understand no, what it's, in 2008. Well, it's kind of complicated because it actually started a few years before 2008. I decided and announced to my colleagues and to key clients that I was going to step away from the role of being the CEO uh, at a point five years into the future. So this was, I think, in 2005. And I um, committed to a five-year um, a five-year plan to uh, take myself out of the CEO role. I think I thought then. I still do think uh, it's very important that founder CEOs uh, develop an articulated and public plan about their succession. I don't think anyone should be CEO for life, and I think it's particularly important that founders uh, acknowledge. Uh, uh, that um, both their own limitations and also the opportunity to create a clear focus for the future and clear uh, uh, career opportunities for other people within the firm. And so anyway, in about 2005, I made it clear that I was going to step away from being the CEO. wasn't clear who was going to take my place. We had five years to figure that out. And along the way, in 2007, um, I was introduced to the Quintile firm through a friend. And um, the short version of that story is over the course of 2007, we uh, came to the conclusion that we would combine the two firms, Coaches Fitz and Quintile. And our closing date was January 1st, 2008. And um, the plan there was for um, me to remain as the CEO of the combined firm for a two-year period of time. At the end of that two-year period, again, this was part of the merger negotiation, Rob Francis, who had been the managing director of Quintile, would take over as the CEO of the combined firm. And give or take a couple of months, uh, that's exactly what did happen. The firm initially was going to be called, continued to be called Coaches Fitz. Coaches Fitz firm had been around longer than Quintile. The Coaches Fitz firm, um, as it combined with Quintile, uh, had the lion's share of the ownership of the combined firm. It was 65-35 Coaches Fitz, 35 uh, uh, Quintile. 
But to avoid um, the possibility of ill will, we very early on decided to change the name of the firm and not have it remain Coaches Fits, but to come up with a new name so that, um, so that it would reflect the fact that we were creating something bigger and newer than either of the predecessor firms. So um, there was no sale. Uh, there was no money that changed hands at all. It was just ownership of Coaches Fits turned into ownership of the new firm and ownership of Quintal turned into ownership of the new firm. And then we changed the name of the firm. So let's drill down into a, a number of things that you just mm -hmm. talked about, because there's so many similarities with firms that I see today with owners that are going through, albeit uh, maybe with much smaller firms than Coaches Fitz and Quintile were at the time, but they were, they're going through the same things that you were going through at the time. One of these things you talked about was um, the, the plan of the CEO. And uh, you've, I've heard you say in the past about you've seen signs of CEOs sticking around too long. And you, 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 made, you made a point about making the intentions of the CEO, make that person, he or she making them public. So let's talk a little bit about that. What do you mean by sticking around too long? What's what are the what are the, what are the issues that that go along with that? Well, I don't think that there's any particular time frame, but I think there are symptoms of a CEO sticking around for too long, where uh, there is a, a lack of uh, uh, forward. Uh, growth, a lack of enthusiasm about what the future is, uh, too much reliance on, well, let's just keep things nice and cozy as they are now because I'm making a lot of money and I don't want to rock the boat. So um, complacency, I think, is one of the strong indicators of um, the CEO sticking around too long, as opposed to having uh, a real um, fire in his or her belly about about growth and um, some um, frustration and um, and poor morale on the part of other people within the firm. If people don't see an opportunity for their own advancement, uh, either in the equity, the ownership of the firm or in the management opportunities within the firm, they're going to look elsewhere. The The best people are going to look elsewhere for those kinds of opportunities. So if you start to lose some really important talent and if they're, um, if they're frank about why they're going elsewhere, then that's a really strong sign that the CEO is stuck around too long. But don't you also think there's ways to sort of mitigate some of that by having those key employees uh, in particular sharing the equity ownership of, of the firm and developing something around that? Well, that's an important step in any event. I think one of the easiest ways, uh, surprisingly, I think to many people, but one of the easiest ways to, to uh, embark on a succession strategy is to begin to distribute ownership of the firm 
And that what that does is it gives people a stake in the firm's success. It gives them an opportunity to share in the profits of the firm so they can begin to accumulate wealth. And then over time, perhaps have enough accumulated wealth that they can buy more and more, providing a potential for a in, completely internal transition of the founding generation's equity. You can't make. You can't wait until the very end for that to happen. You're sort of forced at that point to look for a merger or a sale opportunity right. if no one internally has the wherewithal to buy. Well, you you get you can start getting wherewithal into people's hands early on. And it's, I think, important, though, Derek, to distinguish between ownership and, and the early distribution of ownership from management. This is one of the reasons why founder CEOs are often very reluctant to engage in a transition because they fear that it will mean that they will lose control. They will lose the ability to manage. And as a result, they they hold all the cards, the management and the equity cards close to their vest. Well, if they re realize that you can separate the attributes of ownership from the attributes of management, not own, not uh, just because someone owns uh, equity doesn't mean that they have control or the limit or the areas of control can be limited. So um, I think that's that's the key is to distinguish between ownership and management. And uh, you can have different paces for those things and you can have different uh, different how shall I put it, strategies around decision-making. Some really crucial strategic decisions could be made by the ownership group as a whole, but the day-to-day -day, uh, control decisions are made by a small management team, and maybe there are some uh, really key topics that the founder CEO, in a sense, has unique control over, has a veto right. over decisions. So there are lots of ways you can structure that management transition. Um, and the, the point is to recognize that you can structure it. It doesn't have to be a, um, a sudden and complete uh, relinquishment of control. It can be gradual and it can be, it can be categorized. Well, these decisions and these structures have everything to do with later on when you when the owner is considering a sale of the business. Oftentimes, in fact, buyers want that CEO to stick around because they haven't done as good of a job uh, delegating some of those responsibilities and the relationships with the clients are primarily with the CEO. So in those situations, they want them to stick around for fear of breakage. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's true. And, uh, but those firms that haven't done anything along those lines aren't as attractive a, um, uh, a merger or an acquisition candidate as those firms that have already begun to structure uh, durability uh, within the firm. And I should go back and say, that's one of the really key reasons for uh, uh, making a an announced 
and detailed plan about these kinds of transitions is that the clients and the prospects are very interested in them. Clients want to know that the firm has got durability. And when the clients start asking the CEO, well, what happens after you? If there isn't a really clear answer to that, that's a problem. And prospects, the savvy prospects, are going to start asking that question of founder CEOs who are in their 60s now with no clearly announced plan for what happens next. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I would argue that some prospects won't even ask that question. They'll just see it and right. they, won't, they won't even call you. They'll, go, they'll um, go someplace else. Exactly. So do you ever feel like you left too early from Experian? Because, I mean, clearly you got a lot of passion still in this business. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever feel that way? Uh, no, not really. Um, if, first of all, I left in sort of stages. The first stage of leaving was to um, step away from being the CEO. And again, I had planned that uh, on my own time frame uh, for a number of years. And so... Um, I had plenty of time to get used to that. And then I took a, a six-month sabbatical, and I just really basically cut off uh, contact with the firm uh, for six months to uh, give me an opportunity to get accustomed to no longer being uh, the guy in charge and to give Rob Francis an opportunity to um, establish his uh, his perspective and his uh, authority within the firm without having to look over his shoulder and have me be in the in the wings. Uh, I think in retrospect, uh, had I had it to do all over again, I would have made that sabbatical a year. Six months, I don't think, was enough time, either for me or for Rob. I think a year would have been better. But then I came back and was board chair for a while. And um, then that, I think, got to be a little awkward for Rob to have me, former CEO and long, you know, founder of the Coaches Fitz firm as his board chair. So I stepped away from that. And then um, I stepped away entirely as an employee in 2012. So that was another departure. And that I think the timing on that was right. And then the final departure was just this last December. My ownership stake in the firm was large enough that it was difficult for the firm to absorb it all at once. So it was, it was sold back to the firm and to individuals within the firm gradually over a number of years. And the final piece of that was sold last December. So okay. it's only last December that I'm finally, uh, in a sense, uh, departed from Experient, other than I have many friends there. It's uh, an important legacy, personal legacy of mine. And I'm a client of the firm. And so I'm still tuned into what's going on there. Uh, so you're really engaged. So that's, that, that's great. Um, so let's let's jump to something that uh, I find very interesting. Just took a look at your website. You've done some stuff on the international front, I think, particularly in China. Um, and, you know, as we kind of close out our podcast here, tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, on the international front to spread this idea of independent advice to other countries. Well, I have been involved with the internationalization of financial planning for many years. This probably goes back to the mid-90s. And so um, 
the perspective that I have on this is trying to help it along, help to um, uh, to foster the professionalism of financial planning in countries outside the U.S., but also to foster the development of something that is akin to um, the RIA business model here in the U.S. In recent years, I haven't done as much uh, in uh, China as I have done in the past. It's become uh, uh, complicated and awkward. The current government of China is not as uh, receptive to external influences as they as they once were. But um, I am still active. I've uh, written uh, lots of things that appear in um, publications in Europe. Uh, I've written a chapter for a book that's used in uh, universities in Germany. I've written a chapter for a book uh, written in, in Dutch uh, that uh, was deployed in the Netherlands. I wrote a book that I can't read in Chinese uh, about wealth management for uh, the new middle class, emerging middle class in China. So I've continued to be involved, but the opportunities to exert a lot of influence are not as robust as I had imagined they were going to be. The cultural differences are still very strong. So I think the, the RIA business model or something like it will probably eventually um, grow much bigger than it currently is. But there are some really important differences in culture and in governmental receptivity to this. I think there are a few countries that have cultures very similar to the U.S., strong, small business entrepreneurialism like Canada and Australia, uh, Israel, uh, where something akin to the U.S. form of uh individual RIA firms is likely to continue to grow, but it's going to be a much tougher sale in uh, some other countries where the individual small business entrepreneurial culture is, is not the same and particularly difficult, I'm sad to say, in a country like um, China, where there is a strong uh, reliance on institutions like banks, particularly to deliver uh, financial planning services. It's very difficult for individual um, entrepreneurs to launch themselves because there's nothing equivalent to a Schwab as a friendly custodian and execution platform as, for example, uh, was the key to the growth of the RIA space in the U.S. Right. So Schwab and TD and Fidelity, Pershing, uh, these made it possible for the RIA space to to flourish in the U.S. There's no equivalent in, in most other parts of the world. Well, Tim, I want to thank you again for being on the show. You've directly contributed mightily to this industry and now indirectly uh, through all your work that you're doing, uh, contributing as well. So we appreciate everything and uh, really enjoy having you on the show today. Thank you very much, Derek. It's my pleasure. And thank you for listening to my show today. 
You can subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name. Have a great day and stay safe.